0: Hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 100. Thanks so much for joining me. A longtime contributor and, and a poet that I really admire, Alison Luderman, will be joining us at the bottom of the hour. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry. And I know you love poetry too, so please do make sure you click the like button and share. Um, I've talked a little bit about how much, how valuable it is to share um, stuff on social media because everything is algorithm based and, um, and you can fall into this spiral where nobody sees your posts so nobody comments and likes and so nobody shares and so the algorithm doesn't think it's worthwhile. And um, lately, I'm happy to say that on Facebook, we're back into the old ways. We have um, you know, hundreds of uh, likes and, and things like that per post, which is really wonderful. So thanks, everybody, for doing that. And uh, you can help out by doing that right now, too. So make sure you share and uh, make sure you're subscribed. Click the bell for notifications, all that kind of good stuff, just to tell the, to the computers that you care about what we're doing here. Um, and I hope you do, because I love doing it and um always happy to share So before we uh, start with Alison Luterman, of course, we're going to open up with Poets Respond Live. And I'm going to go to um, today's poet, uh, which is uh, Rita Mae Reese. And um, let me call up Rita first and see if we can get her on the line. Hey, Rita, you are live on the air. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. It's so great to talk to you. Um, so where, am I, where are you calling from? Where where, uh, where, are you located? I can't remember.
1: I'm in Madison, Wisconsin.
0: Ah, that's right. And uh, so your poem, How Many, uh, was about... One of many poems we received about the um, just tragic collapse of um, the yeah. tower in Miami. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what what inspired you to write this poem and, and anything you want to say about it?
1: Um, it did come from... I was having lunch with my mother-in-law and my mother and watching them sort of my mother-in-law had just moved into a condo. I just helped her move in a couple of days before. And so just seeing those two um, and myself, of course, struggle with this um, horrific news after a year of just incredible losses and pain and having that juxtaposed with like finally being out in public um in a restaurant um for the first time with those those two um so like things starting to get better and then this reminder of like that devastating loss and what for many families might end up being you know ambiguous loss where the bodies just are never found and one of i think my my mother said remarked on how they said at first oh there was only one body and um, just how human it is to want to believe that, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the same thing happened to me actually. I saw it on Twitter, and I, I you know, I saw yeah. the news. And you know, I don't really look at the news much, but um, on Twitter, on the trending, I happened to see it, and uh, and it said that it said, um, you know, building collapses, and there was video of the wreckage and things. But then it said um, only one, or I think at the time it said like five dead or something. And uh, mm. it was just so, I mean, I believed, like, I thought, like, wow, it must have been empty. Like, somehow that made sense. And I was thinking, like, why would the condo have been empty? Um, right. And then and then to slowly realize that it just wasn't. That's just who who they've identified so far and, and everybody else is presumed dead. It's just such a sad thing.
1: Yeah. And it has that weird quality of being this slowly unfolding thing that happened instantly. Like, it just happened so quickly. Yeah. But, of course, like, the buildup to it was also this you know, long, terrible story, um, with, with so many bad things compounding in mm-hmm. it to make it happen. So as quickly and devastatingly as it did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, do you want to explain to you about this, um, Virginia Wolf quote, which I just loved. that I'd never heard before. You said, uh, you, you saved it and found it from a, a long time ago. Um, do you want to explain that?
1: Yeah. So I'm, a uh, fan of Virginia Woolf. And I, I think at this point I was reading either her diaries or reviews and came across this quote. And I think it was shortly after I read Orlando, but I don't think it was about Orlando. I think it was a review of another biography. And it's just, a as, as some of Virginia Woolf lines do, just sticks in your head in its entirety, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though it can be fairly long. And um, it struck me as very true and something that I hadn't heard expressed quite that way before. And so I've carried it with me for probably over 20 years. And I think I'd tried to put it in a poem even once before. And it's, it's such a complicated quote. <laughs> the first time I tried it, it did not work at all, but just the image of the plates on the waiter's hand um, and the idea of like the the multiplicity of loss that we'll never understand. Even if we have the exact accurate body count, we don't really know how many cells and how many lives that impacted. Like there's that um, unknown quantity. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that quote connected with that in a really, for me, a very powerful way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And too, the plates piled is a metaphor for the floors piled. Up. Just, uh right. just, Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead and read the poem? Sure.
1: How many? A biography is considered complete if it merely accounts for six or seven cells, whereas a person may have as many thousand, one on top of the other, as plates are piled on a waiter's hand. Virginia Woolf. The women with me might as well be ghosts, and maybe me too, though we can order food in the diner next to the table of 20-somethings and their cacophonous lives, so loud we have to nearly shout for each other and the waitress, another sort of ghost, I suppose, to hear. At our table, we are trying to talk about the collapse of a condo a thousand miles away, and how the news at first reported only one death, as if the building had been largely uninhabited, or as if its inhabitants could walk through walls, let ceilings, and the entire lives of neighbors plummet straight through them. The building that collapsed maybe, probably, from neglect, Held over 150, the exact number changes with each report. The news travels at a speed far more terrible than mercy. Every day we fall further and further behind. It is almost time to go, and we may not talk about this again. How many selves are we here at this table? And who would like the check?
0: Yeah, just excellent poem. Uh, Rita Mae Reese with How Many. Thanks so much for joining us and for writing and sharing that poem today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the work you do. It rattle's a terrific um, magazine, and really admire you.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, and say uh, say hi to Alison Townsend for us. I guess you're in the same writers group. Alison mentioned that um, in an email to yeah. me
1: today. Yeah. Oh, yes, she is wonderful. I'm very lucky to <laughs> get to share work with her and, and get to read her work on a regular basis.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that must be some group we've got there. If you, if it has both of you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's some really talented women. They've been together. I'm a recent. Um, Recent member joined about two years ago, I think.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Well, well, great. Thanks again for being here, Rita, and uh, talk to you soon. All right, take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. Once again, that was Rita Mae Reese with "How Many" uh, from Poets Respond today, and then we have another poem from Saturday, and the uh, the poet could not uh, make it tonight. And uh, but let's find this poem. This was a Fourth of July poem, and you know the big talk about the Fourth of July nowadays is of course all the fireworks and um and and not only the um, the fire risk is there's just hundreds of really thousands of fires probably across the country hundreds just in in certain cities and um and then with the with the risk of fire of course and and the um the, the trauma that it that it feels sometimes um but also the joy there's such a strange mix of people who love the fireworks and don't and social media is full of uh of sort of a debate usually nowadays on uh, whether or not fireworks are okay or, or they're, if they're great or if they should be banned. Um, they're banned where I am because of the, the heavy, heavy uh, forest fire risk where we are. Uh, it's extreme conditions, and, and you can't... Actually, I was looking at a house one time before we moved up here and just finding one uh, firework shell in the backyard. Um, the, the real estate agent called the police. Um, and this was John Glowney's poem, um, Liberty about the 4th of July. And he says this on Liberty. I'll put this on screen. Liberty is a uh, poem that begins as a response to the 4th of July a few years ago, was set aside and was picked up again today and finished off. Seattle just experienced a heat dome with three days of record temperatures, which is what reminded me of this unfinished poem and the approaching holiday brought it back. And so I'm so glad that this poem uh, did come and become finished. And uh, I'll read it for you. This is John Glowney's poem, Liberty. "'Fire in the hole,' says my neighbor. "'Dry roofs, dry lawns, the reservoir's low. "'It's been an extra dry summer. "'Too dry to set off fireworks,' mutters everyone except him. "'But here we are, milling about in the closed-off street, "'eating three-bean salad and hot dogs blackened on a grill "'dragged off the back deck while he gleefully rains hot sparks everywhere. "'Tim next door has his garden hose out, "'dampening down his straw-colored grass.' "'He'll set us all on fire,' we whisper, "'no regard for the property of others. "'Someone tosses out some smoke bombs. "'The street fills with waves of green, yellow, blue. "'Kids run through the smoke "'as strings of firecrackers fizz. "'They wave sparklers against the approaching dark, "'against the world of adults, "'for liberty, for its pursuit. "'He shouldn't be setting those off,' we all murmur, "'like children secretly in love "'with a fresh fear of each new explosion.' Another loud burst of silver sprays over our heads. Fire in the hole, he shouts. And that was a, the 4th of July poem this year by John Glowney, Liberty. And that poem was actually poem number 500 in the history of Poets Respond. Uh, and that made me curious. I looked up the stats. So we've published, um, for Poets Respond, we've published 500 poems by 327 different poets, over seven years and a little bit. That's been 370 weeks now, um, and the total number of poems submitted since it's all insubmittable. I can actually count this pretty easily. It's 61,952 poems have been submitted to Poets Respond over that seven-year period. Uh, that is an average of 168 per week, and uh, the daily record was uh, 313 in one day on March 20th, 2020. I didn't I didn't add it up, but that week I think we had. Um, 1,200 total for the week. That was, of course, when uh, lockdowns were beginning for the pandemic and everyone was at home kind of freaked out, and, and so people wrote a poem about it, which is what poetry does, and maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit with Allison Luderman. Um, so most of the poems, obviously, or most of the poems are by poets who were in there one time, but the record for most poems on Poets Respond was um, 10 poems, which is Alejandro Escudé, um, Sonny Greenfield, Abby Murray, Devin Ballwood and Dante Festano have each had eight. Michael Mark, Lynn Knight, Amy Miller have had seven. Jacqueline Holton has had six. Jose A. Alcantara and Rain Lennon have had five. And so those are the record board for uh, Poetry Spawn for the first 500 poems. Um, And it made me want to look back at my favorite. I was trying to think if I could pick pick one and which one is probably my favorite. And um, I think it would be this. Um, this was a September fourteenth, two 2014 response poem by Sonia Greenfield. Um, I'll read her note first, I guess. The poem is in response to the ongoing statements between Stephen Sotloff's family and the White House. And, and Stephen Sotloff, if you don't remember, um, he was somebody who was being um, held hostage. Um, I can't remember all the details of the story, actually. He was um, held hostage uh, somehow... Uh, by the Islamic State By ISIS um, But I can't remember um, The details of his being Kidnapped and captured um, But anyway um, So uh, it's a response to that But also a response to the pat use of the phrase Which I heard uttered on CNN On the 13th anniversary of 9-11 That week um, Mostly it's about the inadequacy of platitudes To soothe those who are grieving As a result of tragedy And this week's news seemed rife with it And uh, so this is, I think, my favorite poem that we've published in Poetry Respond. This is Sony Greenfield's poem, just a great, great use of metaphor and image here, A Spokesperson Said Thoughts and Prayers Go Out. So let's play that.
3: A spokesperson said thoughts and prayers go out. Out like what? Whispers in a tin can tied with yarn, a thousand miles long to the can of a woman, her ear desperately pressed to its emptiness. Like a loon song transmitted by Morse? Can you fathom the miles of murky ocean that whale must sing through? Did you know some people believe all sounds ever made are still present, hovering like butterflies? Even say the whir of a copy machine out there in the ether, sent flying when the first plane hit. Do you see voices as monarch wings wheeling through the sky? If you shout from the window of a thousand-foot tower before you fall, where does that scrap of voice go? Is it still falling? You mean go out like candles snuffed by the wind? You mean out like empathy in tiny increments marching like ants made of sound across the wires of the world? Did she just hear an Our Father whiz past? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, she said. I think you're breaking
0: up. Just a wonderful poem again. Once again, that was uh, Sonia Greenfield's poem. A spokesperson said, "Thoughts and prayers go out." And um, I just—that's one of those things. You hear that phrase, "Thoughts and prayers go out," and every time. Those lines and that image of the ants. Um, what did she say? Um, In tiny increments, marching like ants made of sound across the wires of the world. Every time somebody, some politician. Making platitudes says that phrase now. I see those ants sort of marching out of his mouth across the wires, as if uh, he really cares. And that is Sony Greenfield's poem. Um, a spokesperson said, "Thoughts and prayers go out." Um, I wanted to see who um, has a poet respond poem. If you have a poet respond poem um, that's ready to go, um, text me right now. Let's see, because I'd like to keep the first half an hour poet respond. Um, Okay, Well, I think then, in that case um, If you have a news poem I'm going to put up the numbers on screen again here um, They are right here So uh, email it to openmic at rattle.com That's openmic at com, Or send me a uh, chat message over Skype To Rattle Poetry uh, Or call in the phone 818-850-7727 Just let it ring a few times Then hang up and I'll call you right back um, looking for Poets Respond poems right now, but I'm going to play just a random one then if we don't have any lined up from guests. We have tons of prompt poems for later in the show, though. um. So I'm going to just go to a random one. We'll go down to what year? Let's go down to, um, let's write Happy. I wonder if Happy was actually a Happy poem. This is Nancy Lee from March nineteenth, two 2007. And uh, here we go. Let's do this, and we'll see if anybody has a a poem about current events to share in the next 10 minutes. This is uh, Nancy Lee. Uh, This poem is about a young Tuva girl, Saglana Selchak, from the Taiga Forest in Siberia near the Mongolian border, who traveled hours to get help for her sick grandmother. She traveled several miles across frozen tundra and riverbanks high with snowdrifts filled with wolves. I thought about girls and fairy tales, happiness and helplessness, and how wonderfully life frustrates these boxes. And so that is Nancy Lee talking about this article. I wonder if there's a photo of the Tuva girl. Yeah, here she is. Um, Salgana Selchak, crossing the area filled with wolves, wins prize from locals, but lands mother in legal trouble. And that's the girl who braved the wolves for uh, for this poem. And here's this poem, Happy by Nancy Lee, her response to this news article way back in uh, March 19th, 2017. Happy.
4: You told me that I'm not happy or not someone you think of as happy, and I sense that it came from love or something wanting to be near it. I struck back when what I wish I'd said was that young Saglana from the Taiga Forest walked five miles at minus 34 to get help for her grandma. She was four and alone along frozen banks, no fear of wolves, nothing but a tight fist of matches, trekking tundra and carrying fire. That I see, and words turn me back into song, a throat song, some lit thing nearer is all, if you'd asked.
0: Once again, that was Nancy Lee with Happy.
4: (laughs) So let's call up uh,
0: Karen Warinsky right now and see what Karen had. Okay. I don't know. Hey, that. Karen, I hear myself in the background, so mute yourself, and then we'll bring it in. Hello. Yes, yeah, so, so great to see you. So uh, what did you want to share? This was a uh, known knowns, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes from uh, an interesting person, to say the least, Donald Rumsfeld.
5: Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, he died last week, and I kind of tried to tie it into 4th um, of July, And the fact that we're pulling out of Afghanistan, it all kind of came together as a perfect storm, I felt. Um, And then I saw that Rachel Maddow had shared, you know, the day he died, um, I think it was the 30th, last Wednesday, um, that he actually lives in a house of a man who was known to be a slave breaker and that he purposely Hmm. bought this house. It was his weekend house. And I just thought, all these things kind of make sense to me because, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, obviously, so, I'm so no fan. So a slave
0: breaker is somebody like that was abusive, to, especially abusive to slaves like that. Were, right. Oh, wow. And he bought right. that if on purpose? Had, if oh, you wow. were a
5: slave who was incorrigible or wouldn't do what the master wanted or had um, a mind of your own and the, the master would get frustrated enough, they would send you to a person like this. And so Donald Rumsfeld owned this man's house and lived in it on the weekend. And I just think he wow. was one of the uh, orchestrators of a lot of misery. Um, you know, now we're leaving Afghanistan in uh, not great shape. Who knows what will happen over there? Should we have even been over there? I mean, there's just so many questions wrapped around that whole 20 year period that we're just finishing up. And so um, I kind of, I don't know, I sat down and I wrote this piece.
0: Okay, well, let's hear. It. This is on No Knows. Go ahead, whenever you're ready, I'll put it up.
5: Okay. Known Knowns, freedom brings the fight. So many ways to be a slave. We all must rise and rise and continue to rise up out of our chains. Fear and insecurity not self-imposed bonds, while some are drawn by others, slowly, quietly, shrouding the draping of our doom, all require breaking. Rumsfeld owned Mount Misery, home of Edward Covey, slave breaker, tormentor of Frederick Douglass, till Douglass escaped into his destiny. A vacation home where he could flee his own torture, consequence of his daily decisions, displacing millions of Iraqis and Afghanis, sending thousands to die on their own personal mounts of misery. As he sat in his weekend home, creating justifications Sipping cool drinks in Covey's front room, while others gulped on the waterboard. Now we pull out of Afghanistan and face the unknown unknowns without him.
0: Oh wow, great poem! That was unknown unknowns or no known knowns. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, uh, Karen Warinsky. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, I appreciate it. And it's interesting that you um. He he's talked about cold drinks because the weirdest thing about Rumsfeld was that he had a big role, I guess, in a, getting the approval through for aspartame, the uh, the drink sweetener, oh. um, which might go down in history. I mean, that might be it might go down in history like cigarettes or something. I mean, he's got his hands on everything. Um, yeah, and that was back yeah. in the 70s. Um, interesting Not story.
5: Not <laughs> necessarily a great. Uh, career you know so uh, yeah
0: yeah for sure
5: a <laughs> lot of questions and i just found it very interesting so this edward covey was the man who tried to break frederick douglas oh wow and you know frederick douglas is a great patriot and strong man and and you know got out of his situation and um i just found all these things coming together very interesting if people want to read the transcript of rachel maddow's um piece that she relayed about this it's online you can find it um june 30th last week so
0: all right well thanks so much for sharing that karen a really really interesting poem i appreciate it
5: thank you yep
0: take care bye-bye bye that was uh karen warinski with uh no knowns about donald rumsfeld so we have three minutes or a little less than that until we're going over to Allison luderman so let's do really quick and we'll get to david cook later i see the things are popping up now so whatever happened whatever's happening is fixed i don't know what was going on um, but sweet. we have David Cook there We have uh, Grace Farron We have Julian Matthews um, A bunch of people are ready um, Richard Westheimer's Westheimer's here too But really quick, let's do um, the Psyku for this week Since we only have a couple minutes The whole point of the Psyku is to just let you know And remind everybody in the world That you don't have to do poems about big news stories There's science news every day And um, so this was uh, interesting This was the article I was looking at this week Vaccines grown in eggs induced antibody response against an egg-associated glycan. And this was just interesting to talk about the way that um, there's just uh, speaking of uh, Rumsfeld with known unknowns and unknown unknowns. um, These researchers were studying flu vaccine at the Wilson Lab at the University of Chicago. And they kept coming up with a strange finding that um, they kept finding these cross-reactive antibodies that were just reactive to everything they tested. And for years, they couldn't figure out why. And it turns out, this is with the traditional vaccines, has nothing to do with COVID or anything like that. Um, this was flu vaccines they were working on. But it turns out that they were growing the viruses, or growing the vaccine in eggs, which is uh, the way we do it. It's a cheap way to grow virus or grow vaccine. And um, in the egg, there are these uh, sugars. And, and somehow, without even realizing it, um, the, the vaccines were producing antibodies for the sugars, rather than uh, just the viruses they were working on. So um, that is a weird story. Um, we don't know what the, um, the implications of this story are. Um, it might be that the vaccines, like the, the flu vaccine, are less effective than they could be. So it could be good news where we learn to make better flu vaccines because of this discovery. Um, but it's just really interesting. Uh, there seems to be... It's not, it doesn't give you allergies. There's no risk of that. They even mentioned that at the bottom of this article. Um, but my Saiku based on this was here and i I try to decide i can't decide if i should go in strange directions with the saiku or keep it close to the vest so this is the saiku and here we go long or lights long journey from the sun into the sun eggs over easy lights long journey from the sun into the sun eggs over easy that is our saiku for today really quick way to uh, make sure the timing lines up and remind everybody that you can write a poem about anything. Um, now let's go to our uh, guest for tonight, Allison Luderman. I'm going to put a brief um, splash screen up here and uh, call her up and we'll, oops, that's next week's guest, this week's guest, Alison Luderman. Um, I'll call her up and we'll be right back in just a minute or two. And we're kind of back, a bit of a technical difficulty, a little bit of a delay, and we're waiting for Allison to restart her computer so we get video, too. We were only getting audio and not video. But while we wait for her to uh, restart, and then I'll call her back up, let me just read her bio here. Allison Luderman is a poet, essayist, and playwright. Her books include poetry collections In the great in the Time of Great Fires from Catamaran Press that just came out, um, Desire Zoo, which is the other one we have here, The Largest Possible Life uh, from Cleveland State University Press, uh, See How We Almost Fly, and a collection of essays, Feral City from She Books. Um, she also has written plays, um, including Saying Kaddish with My Sister, Hot Water, Glitter and Spew, Oasis, Touched, and the musicals The Chain. Um... Alison Luterman was raised in Massachusetts, the oldest of four children. She began writing poetry at the age of six or seven and has never stopped. Since 2000, she has taught memoir and poetry through the Writing Salon in Berkeley, California, as well as at Esalon and Omega Institutes, at the Great Mother Conference, and at poetry festivals and conferences around the country. She lives in a rambling old house in Oakland, where she tries and fails to keep the cat from clawing the couch and writes poems, essays, plays, and song lyrics. So let's actually call Alison up now. It should be should be better by now. And we're here with Allison Luterman. Uh, hey, Allison. We already read <laughs> your bio, so I'm just going to say hello. How are you doing today? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm fine, thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, a little delay, but that is okay. Um, it's good to see you. We finally got everything uh, worked <laughs> worked up again and working right. Um, so, um, I don't know, do you want to start us out with a poem?
4: Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Okay. Um, Let me start with one from Desire Zoo. That's the next to the last book. Um, I'm going to start with a fun one. Um, This is called Man on Wire, Woman on Couch Screaming. And if anybody's seen that movie called Man on Wire, it's about Philippe Petit. He's the guy who, he's a wire walker, and he illegally, uh, with some friends, strung cable between the Twin Towers when the Twin Towers were up and walked on it without a net, you know, I don't know, a mile up in the sky um, in New York years and years ago, I think it was in the 70s, and, and there's a little film made about it, a documentary. And I am so scared of heights that, you know, when I get on a balance beam three feet up on the air, my ankles turn to jelly. So just watching the, him, watching the movie sent me into a tizzy. So this is called Man on Wire, Woman on Couch Screaming. Above flapping green awnings and cars idling at stoplights. Above yellow lines and white lines painted on asphalt. And the man hawking coffee and donuts from his little metal cart. Above cruel, jagged cornices of buildings and cars idling at stoplights. Uh, Above clouds, above gulls and their squawking. Higher than that, 110 stories up. One slippered foot glides onto a strung cable, then the other, and he's dancing, holding nothing but a long pole balanced against air currents, against laws, against common sense, dancing in God's empty palm. Slender wisp of a man, black clad, crazy clown, and you watching the video on your couch Why are you screaming and writhing like a woman in orgasm or childbirth, like someone being dangled head down from a great height? You're safe as a hamster in your own safe house, watching this man walk on a wire between what used to be twin towers. There used to be a world to step off from. Elevators, fax machines, water coolers. Who'd ever dream the dreamer would outlast steel? There are moments you pray to be ready for, but seldom are. He steps off the edge into air. Great shining panes of light, sheer freedom, the magnetic dread and pull of it. Now he kneels. Now he salutes the towers, the city, all space and time. Now he lies down face to the sky, perfectly relaxed, and you want to faint, (laughs) you who do not trust even the ground to hold you, who think you'll fall off the earth for one misspoken word. But this, it's like being inside a cathedral of pure terror, skewered by the sound of bells, And even after he climbs down and is received into the blue-coated arms of a New York City cop, even after the whole city exhales and goes back to its ordinary pleasures and ills, it goes on somewhere, forever in the mind, in the living cells, to step out of the possible into amazement, how the dream floats over the city where steel melted and buildings dissolved. Oh, in the end, only the ephemeral endures.
0: There's a great poem. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Man on wire, woman on couch, screaming. Screaming. <laughs> From Desire Zoo. <laughs> a beautiful book, the, the older book of the two we have here. And I just love, I remember this poem, and I love that, um, that line uh, toward the end, to step out of the possible into amazement. Um, which is what I think of, um, is what poetry does. Isn't, isn't that what poetry is doing is stepping out of the possible into amazement?
4: Um, yeah, I think so. So, so
0: what is your conception of what you're doing as a poet? Like why, why are you here making poems? Why is that important part of your life and how did it become an important part?
4: Such a great question. It's been a part of my life since I was a tiny girl, you know, since I was like six or seven. I mean, I was writing poems very early, and I just didn't stop. So it just became, um, I think the music of the language seduced me at first, rhyming and music, and even, and I had this great book, A Child's Golden Treasury of Poetry, edited by Louis Untermeyer, when I was a kid. Somebody gave it to me, and probably my parents, I'm sure, and it's funny because in my mind it was a huge book, and i I've since found that old copy, and it's not actually that big. But I was really small, and it was, it to me, it was like the world. And there were a lot of poems in there that were really over my head when I read them. I didn't understand them, but something about the language and the music of it seduced me. And um, there's there's a kind of magic in it. Yeah, I've tried to quit. <laughs> I've tried to quit poetry numerous times in my life and I failed each time. Why
0: is it? I'm kind of curious about that. Like what 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 is it that makes you makes you think of quitting? And then uh, what is it that that brought you back?
4: Well, you never make any money and you know it, it's you know when I reckoned up all the time and energy and blood sweat and tears and how hard you know it, it is to get something really to work. And then I thought, well, I could be, you know, spending this time, you know, getting ahead in the world in some other way and um, I always came back because I needed it and I think especially in moments of emotional you know intensity we kind of need song we need poetry we need we kind of have to go to that place um, so I'm, I'm a lifer. I've sort of resigned myself. I'm not going to be able to quit. <laughs> I did make a few valiant efforts <laughs> to well, make something well, of myself. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're
0: glad you failed at that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
4: you. Um, do you want to read another poem? I do. I do. I'll, I'll read something from in the time of great fires now, which is the new book. Um, and let's see. I've got a couple of things marked here.
0: Oh, and let me know what page it's on too for. Quick flip. Oh
4: yeah, I will. Um, um, so I'm going to read "Canoe," which is on page 16. Um, canoe. When I was young, years ago, canoeing on the green, green river with my young first husband, I wriggled out of my shorts, eased over the lip of our little boat, and became eel woman, naked and glistening, borne along in the current. He paddled. I floated and whirled and let the ripples take me. Even an hour of that kind of freedom can last for years and years, can become a touchstone you return to long after the rented canoe has been returned and the road trip has ended, and then the marriage, and then the husband's brief life, and you yourself have become someone else entirely, still you return in your mind to the days you could set up a tent in the dark and build a small fire from birch bark and newspaper and sit beside it, savoring your muscles, sweet ache as one by one, the uncountable stars came out. That's um, page 16 in the time of great fires
0: canoe. Yeah, that is canoe from in the time of great fires, which you see on the screen here. Um, is, uh, both of these two books, the covers are just so beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask you about how this book came to be because I, I was surprised it won the 2020 Catamaran Prize, um, and then there are a, bu- a lot, several poems about the pandemic. Um, yeah. So, how, what was the timeline like on this? I was just thinking, like, how is this poem? How is this book here now and not next year?
4: Yeah, it, it was such a short turnaround. I've never had such a short turnaround from um, winning a prize to when it was published. So, I found out that I won. I think it was May 31st of 2020. And then the next day or so, George Floyd was murdered like that weekend or something. I mean, it was right around that time. Um, and then the book itself came out in September. So that was just four months. So, um, the you know, the manuscript won the prize. But then I went through an editing process um, after it had won with um, Zach Rogow, who works for Catamaran, is a wonderful poet and a good editor. And... Um, you know i said to him can i include you know these newish poems that i'd written in the last few months but i mean the 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 time frame of learning that i had won the prize from the time that the contest ended was not very long either so some of them may have even in, in the manuscript before it was just all happened really fast in 2020
0: yeah that, that seems really quick i almost did a double take and i was like wait a minute pandemic <laughs> I no know, i
4: know i know and it's early pandemic poems as as opposed to there's late i have late pandemic poems which will be in the next book whenever
0: that happens yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about this the theme of the book and the time of great fires we can imagine you know what that is just just thinking about the theme of course we both live in california so we have the the wildfires that are going like crazy thankfully not right now but uh but soon no right. doubt um, but then there are the other fires that are going on i mean is it sort of a time of, of fire um can you just yeah. talk a little bit about how you conceived of that like like why were you drawn to that for, as a title for the book
4: um, that was also an 11th hour decision choice. I mean, I was struggling. I for When I first conceived of the book, like six years ago, I wanted it to be about the divine feminine and I wanted it to really focus on women. And there are, as you probably noticed, a lot of poems about women and girls and um, female images of the divine and, you know, just all kinds of poems about women and girls. But I also see a fire. Rising in young, well, all women, but also especially young women. I see the feminine really, I don't know, maybe that's an old fashioned way to put it. I, I don't know if that word is even works anymore for our times, but you know, I see w- young women like Greta Thurnberg and um, Emma Gonzalez and Alexandria Orcasio Cortez and the women who created Black Lives Matter, Patrice Colors, and all, all these amazing women, Alicia Garcia. All of them um, just on fire, you know, with the kind of energy to to move the world and, and things toppling, you know, the Me Too movement, um, all of it, the Black Lives Matter movement. So I just saw this huge fire of change mm-hmm. coming yeah, for a year.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you think about, you know, fires is, is something we're terrified of. But, but in the forest, actually, the fire is there's certain – certain uh, pine trees that can't you know, germinate without the fire to come through and clear the underbrush and open the pods and things like that. And, the, and a fire is an important mm-hmm. part of an environment too, in a way of burning off the the excess dead load, you know? So yes, yes. it's a very interesting metaphor for the content in the book. Um, uh, you're, you're a very prolific writer. It seems to me, I mean, you, you come up with great poems through Poetry Respond very often in, in our submission <laughs> box. And um, I can't remember how many times uh, we published in Poetry Respond but a bunch of times, Um, and it's, and you do a, a monthly, I think, newsletter where you're always having, it just seems like you're cranking out the poems. What is your process like? Do you write every day? Um,
4: Um, I don't, not always, but right now, like in this month of July, 2021, I'm doing a poem a day thing with a friend. So she sends me a poem every day and I send her, I mean, we're writing new poems every day. And the rule is no standards we have we don't have low standards we have no standards so it's like it can be it can be complete like you know crap and that's fine um but i've actually managed you know a couple of poems have gotten written that wouldn't have gotten written otherwise if i didn't need to send a poem to dawn so i'm doing that and and i did that uh the the title poem of in the time of great fires i was doing with another friend poet friend where we agreed to do that um and they're they're not even like my my, uh, closest readers, you know, these women are, are kind of poet acquaintance friends who write in a different style than me. And that seems to work really well for both, both ends of us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, do you want to read another poem from, uh, from the book? Yeah. And I I'd should say to- too, before you do that, and if, if anybody has any questions, um, leave them in the chat windows on either Facebook or YouTube and I will pass them along. We have a couple already. Uh, I'll pass them along later, but why don't we hear another poem in the meantime?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to, um, Let's see, I want to read. Um, some girls. This kind of speaks to your question of like the theme. Um, some girls can't help it; they are lit sparklers, hot blooded, half naked in the depths of winter, tagging moving trains with the bright insignia of their fury. I've seen their inked torsos, falcons, swans, meteor showers and shadowed their secret rendezvous, walking and flying all night over paths traced like veins through the deep body of the forest, where they are trying on their new wings, rising to power with a ferocious mercy not seen before in the cities of men. Having survived slander, abuse, and every kind of exile, they're swooping down even now from treetops where they were roosting Wearing robes woven of spiderwebs and pigeon feathers, they have pulled the living child out of the flames and are prepared to take charge through the coming apocalypse. I've learned that some girls are boys, some are birds, some are oases ringed with stalking lions. See, I cannot even name them, although one of them is looking out through my eyes right now. One of them is writing all this down with light-struck fingers.
0: That was some girls from in the yes. in the time of great fires. Um, yes, let's let's do another a question. Um, this was from David Cook. He says, "Allison, you said that uh, body is always a theme in my work. Do you have a particular fondness for certain parts, appendages, or organs?" <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, no, I don't, I, uh, I want to, I want to talk about the body from the inside out rather than the, rather than thinking of it as an assemblage of parts. I want to talk about how it feels to be in a body, how it feels to be in a muscular, moving, sensing, feeling body. Blood is probably a big theme for me, skin, um, breath Mm -hmm. more, more so than any part. Uh, Fingers, maybe, hands, eyes. I don't know. All of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One
0: of the things that that I wanted to talk about, um, I I read somewhere that you're in an improv troupe. um, Yeah. And that you, um, in that improv troupe, you write poems spontaneously um, during the the act of performing. Can you talk a little bit about how you got, how you started doing that? I mean, it's such a strange thing to be doing. And, yeah, um, and, yeah. and and that, that must inform your poetry in, in some way.
4: Well, it, it's okay. So the troupe was called, is called Wing It. We've been on a long, you know, I mean, things are shifting in that organization, which is called Interplay and the pandemic. You know, we haven't met in person for a long time. We were meeting on Zoom a little bit. Um, and I got sort of uh, roped into, you know, just, hey, do a poem. Alice, you're a poet, do a poem. And, you know, There's usually a musician behind me kind of vamping um, and uh, sometimes people dancing and I'll stand there and speak a poem. I'm not writing it. I'm saying it as it comes. Um, And when I was first asked to do that, I was like, Oh my God, I can't do that. I I have to sit at my desk and, you know, sweat over every word. That's how I work. Um, But I just, did it? I just opened my mouth and like whatever whatever comes out, you know, I'm gonna go with. And it's di- the the stuff that I improvise like that is a little different, feels different than what I write. But it showed me that you can do it. You know, you can just um, just open your mouth and speak. You, anybody can try it if you're listening at home. You know, just stand in the middle of your living room or your bedroom and just start saying words. And you know you could tape record it and you could record it. I'm sorry, I'm that's my that's dating me. <laughs> you can record it on your phone in your voice memo app. And you know you there you have a poem.
0: Do you remember the first time you did it? I mean it seems like that would be terrifying though to be you know on stage and, and having you know having to do that. I mean even even I'm myself in a room, if I was recording it, it seems like it would be sort of frightening. It's interesting to think about why that would be frightening, but but did you experience it that way?
4: Yeah, uh, well, I mean Interplay what is really great. Is people if they're interested can go to interplay.org or bodywisdom.org and check it out. And what they do is yeah, it's it is scary for many people to improvise because you could make you know, you could make a fool of yourself, you you know. But they break it down into these really little increments of um, they're really good at breaking stuff down so that uh, it was at a workshop and it was in my first um, away workshop where, you know, I was there for two or three days with this group of people and we'd been playing together. We'd been, you know, making funny sounds and and dancing, you know, and and moving our bodies and. Doing, you know, making fools of ourselves in front of each other a lot, and so I wasn't in front of an audience. I was, I was just with people who were also doing this. And then um, the director asked me to say a poem, and I, I remember there were peacock feathers in a big vase, it just happened to be at this place. So I, I was so shy that I took the peacock feathers and I stuck them in the waistband of my yoga pants. So the feathers were kind of created a little screen uh, in front of my face. and I spoke the poem. And there were peacocks on this property. so uh, in this retreat center, it was Isis Oasis. So I spoke the poem through the peacock feathers and it was a poem about the peacocks and And that actually ended up going into one of my books, that poem, oh, wow. so you know I mean a version of it, not exactly what I but you know, I afterwards went and wrote down what I remembered and played with
0: it that's that's interesting, yeah. like like i um I assume usually these probably aren't recorded, right, so you have no record of all the poems that you've done in this way i, I assume. no,
4: yeah, no, I don't, I just speak them, and they're gone, you know they're here and they're gone, and you're kind of you know, while I'm doing it, I'm paying attention to the sound of the music behind me and I'm watching the dancers and I'm trying to, you know, the, they're informing me, you know, what their movement is informing me. And and sometimes I'm moving myself. So it's all kind of a dream. You know, it's a big dream that we're all collaborating in. And when it's over, it's sort of like, I just had this cool dream with these people. And I, you know, I don't remember every bit of it, um, but it's a fun thing to do if you let go of, you know, having to do it right, or, you know, I mean, a lot of the poems that I spoke might not work on the page.
0: Hmm. Um, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, okay. You- <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's just your screen froze too. So I, um I always I want to make sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we should just keep it with the audio and not worry about getting the the screen, the video, which is frozen too. Um, okay. but, uh, but that's fine. Cause the, 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 sound quality comes through great. Um, but, but just to continue about that, that thought that the spontaneity of, um, of, of just spitting out poems kind of, th- does that inform the way you write poems on the page when you're, you're writing later? Um, do you feel yeah. like you're free or, um, you know, does it, does it free up your sort of creativity or, or what's going on when you do that? I mean, that's the thing that I'm really curious about.
4: I think your brain is, I think literally what's going on is that your brain is really lit up. I think my brain gets really lit up when I'm doing that. It, it's a, I feel very enlivened and lit up when I improvise, whether it's making a poem or whether just, you know, doing a dance duet or a scene, you know, I'm, I'm actually in a couple of different, I love doing improv. So I also belong to this Oak, Oakland improv group where we do scenes, which is more typically theatrical. Um, and it, it just makes you fire on all cylinders. It uses all of me in a way that I really like. And I love having my body be involved. Like I'm not sitting, you know, in front of a laptop or in front of a, with a notebook on my lap, I'm up, I'm on moving. And sometimes I'm singing, you know, it feels much more enlivened than sitting and writing. So, yeah, I think it does help. I mean, I want my work to feel spontaneous in that way, but the truth is, is I put things through a million drafts and, Um, I can often be very anal and picky too, so (laughs) all of that. Well, let's hear another
0: poem. What do you want to read next?
4: Um, I'll read anything. Let's see. Um, I want to read the jasmine poem. My niece was just visiting and she, we had, I planted a bunch of jasmine in our, on our front yard and She's from Massachusetts, and she had never seen like a wall of jasmine like, you know, you, you have here, we have here. Mm-hmm. So this is called Jasmine. Sorry, I live on a noisy street. so That's okay. We, we cluster, we clump, we give off the white hot honey of distant stars. Invisible fingers are always stroking our feathery body. We take hold of life like children born to a beautiful mother who know this earth has always been ours. We hang on, we congregate, we thrust through fence railings with green reaching tendrils. Scientists speak of rising seas. Yes, the oceans are heating up. Yet amid ongoing disaster, some woman years ago planted a mess of us from little starts in plastic pots. She didn't know what she was doing as she knelt and dug small holes, plopping in delicate dirt cupcakes, each one topped with a jaunty green hat and a sprig of blossom. She was absent-minded and forgot to water, so it took years, but we were tough with the toughness of the ephemeral. And now we've grown into our own miniature galaxy, a wall of starry scent, a monument to those invisible explosions that occur wherever beauty drops her handkerchief.
0: That was Jasmine. um, Another poem from in the great fires, just another beautiful poem. Um, And and you you mentioned that you were very picky about, about lines and editing. Uh, What is the the editing process like for you? Like, Like a poem like Jasmine, did it, did it start as much longer? Are there drafts that go in different directions before you found what you were, you wanted to do with it? How, how does that work for you?
4: Yeah, things that I often write too much and cut. I overwrite. Um, that often happens. I spend a lot of times a lot of time on thesaurus.com. Do you know that website? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm on there all the time looking for words. Um, uh, you know, I have a lot of I start with kind of placeholder metaphors that aren't that great but you know, I know that I'm going to come back and do something better, more original, sharper, more you know, strange. So I I don't think this. I like strangeness in a poem and strangeness in the language, but I don't naturally go there. Those aren't the well-worn ruts in my, you know, process. So, um, and I think that's maybe one of the differences between the improvised work and the written work is that with the written work, I'm more aware of you know that metaphor isn't very fresh. I need to like find something better, um, and you know, whereas with the improv you just go with the first thought best thought go you -hmm. know and then you're on to the next and you know it's gone
0: so do do you find that the first thought though it has sort of a a more of a creative in it's spontaneity do you think you come up with more interesting things that way is it less of a struggle to sort of spit out new metaphors um while you're doing the improv
4: um sometimes i'm sure that there are some good things i do in improv um And I know, you know, improv, just like anything else, when you do it a lot, you can get into ruts. Mm -hmm. I mean, just like, you know, we all have like our little comfy places where we just dig ourselves a nice, comfortable little rut. And I've certainly done that sometimes with improv. But, um, yeah, you don't have time to think. And so there's there's something beautiful about not being able to overthink things. I mean, you can't, you just there's time. you have to keep talking no matter what comes out of your, your mouth. Well, um, your
0: poems uh, are full of, uh, of characters and seem to be sourced from your own life. I would, I would say, I think that's kind of clear from, yeah. from reading these books. Um, Spartacus and Agnostris asks here, how do you make the characters of your poems feel real? How do you keep faith with the readers?
4: That's a great question. Well, they are real. And, um, Uh, I just, I think it's about picking the right details to make, you know, to make the character pop, you know, to make them, so finding the salient detail that will give the, and it it really doesn't matter in the end if the reader is seeing the same person that I'm envisioning, you know, they they could be seeing, they're, they're not, they're seeing their own version of it. But as long as I've given them enough to go on that they can see somebody
0: Hey, thanks for coming. Can you coming hear me? Back. Yeah, we can. We hear you. And um, so now that we've done that, we have you back in the flesh.
4: <laughs> this has been yeah, quite an adventure of Skype Adventure. Yeah, yeah. so I, I was talking about I Confess, which is a poem that I wrote where I follow an older woman around a supermarket and admiring her hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I people people really like that poem. But are they seeing the same older woman that I'm talking about? No, but it doesn't matter. They're seeing their own version of her.
0: Yeah, well I I always feel like what we're really responding to with poetry is honesty and intimacy, you know? So if it's a real person for you, like that's what comes through on the page, like it doesn't have to be like a specific person in the same way if if that makes sense. You know, like if yeah. um like if, if it's authentic, then it's authentic, like regardless of how you can so it's like the process of making it authentic for you, I think.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not very good at faking things. So I just, you know, I don't know how to do that. I just have to, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so, um, I mean, it does seem like your poems are are drawn from your own life and, and we get a real intimate perspective on, on your life through, you know, the good times and bad. And, um, um, how, how much do you worry about that? Do you think about about how much you're revealing to the public by, by publishing poems about personal topics?
4: Um, yeah, I do. But it's more like I worry about people in my life, for instance, my husband or other people who are close to me or, you know, family members. Um, I don't want other people to feel like I exposed them without their permission. So if I write a poem in which somebody else is exposed, I show it to them before I publish it. Mm -hmm. And if they say they don't, you know, they don't feel comfortable with it, then I don't publish it yeah yeah well, that definitely makes sense
0: um and you write too about um about grief very often, and from your your mother's death is one thing and the end of your marriage, another thing that I noticed um in the book yeah. do you find that poetry is a healing process for you um,
4: I think it must be. I mean, I know a good friend of mine uh named Carla died um and a lot of desire zoo was me writing through her great you know her dying and her death Um, and it was it was a way for me of catching and keeping these moments we had some really beautiful intimate moments as she was uh, in her dying process and I was with her and I'm glad that I have those poems because I remember I captured what we said to each other and you know how she looked at me and how I looked at her and what she looked like and you know, I, I put that in the poems, kind of to keep her. So rather than taking pictures, because I'm not a photographer, I captured it in words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem. Okay, it makes me think maybe I should read a Carla poem, although I hadn't really intended to, but maybe I will. Um, maybe I'll read "Say Yes to the Dress." That was this was a getting married poem. So I got married at the age of 50. Oh, remarried. Um, And um, while I was engaged, I was flying across country and I saw Say Yes to the Dress. You know how you watch junk TV while you're flying? I bring like five books on the plane and then I end up watching TV the whole time. But So this is called Say Yes to the Dress. And in this episode, a woman of 45 whose face says, this cake is stale, whose face says, just tell me how much it costs whose face, if you knew how to feel, would make you overtip your waitress. This woman, hauling her two teenage daughters, her mother, her sister, and an aunt, announces she wants to walk down the aisle in a ball gown, festooned in something poofy, like Cinderella. Even though the entourage and sales lady and everyone agrees, a middle-aged bride should wear a sheath, something knife-like and discreet and lethal. Even though she and her fiancé were both recently laid off, and she's been living with this guy for years, arguing about bills and laundry, they have children together, they have a house which they might lose, and God knows why they're even getting married now. Neither one has health insurance still. It's her one big day, and she's determined to have it. So, dress after dress is trotted out, tea-length confections of satin and tulle. Strapless numbers, ribboned and ruched, and the words shirred and scalloped and pintucked are used and found wanting. The sales lady is practically drowning in a magnificent tumble of glossy, rejected fabrics, leaving the viewer to imagine the texture of this woman's disappointments. Her lower lip trembles. She only has $2,000 to spend, which, in the parlance of this show, is peanuts still a girl has a right doesn't she doesn't she the flight attendant trundles by offering coffee and cookies and headphones and i'm thinking say yes 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 already to the sacred dreaded threshold yes to being shredded like a negligee and scattered like seed pearls and we're a mile up in the sky where even in June there's a freeze of lacy snow over the rough brown breasts of the Rockies. The plane tilts and writes itself so quietly, we don't even notice dozing as we are in a hive of white noise suspended, blind over the deserts and mountains and fruited plains of our inheritance. Americans with not quite enough leg room crowning or chuckling in front of our separate screens, entitled to our dreams and dreaming them.
0: That was Say Yes to the dress A poem first published in Rattle, I think. Rattle number 30-something. Ye- yes, it
4: was in Rattle. Yeah, finally. It's page 21 on, in Desire Zoo.
0: Yeah, from Desire yeah. Zoo. Um, just another another, just fun, interesting poem, um, which all your poems are. They move through language. There, there's just this sense of... Um, I don't know, like openness. Like you never know where it's going to go, and the line lengths vary. It feels like very free flowing kind of as you as you go through your poems. Um, how do you approach line break? Uh, that's something that people ask about frequently, and and yours vary a lot, but in a way that that feels right. And I'm okay, and um, I'm wondering. I I'm just wondering like how you go about doing that. Like what do you think of in terms of where to break a line in a poem?
4: Well, I play with it. I I break them in different places and play with it. When I was younger, I think I. I cared more about like trying to get a surprise with the, you know, with the, with the wraparound. And now I'm more interested in the breath and just wanting, you know, the, the length of the lines to be natural with where you, where we would take a breath. Um, Yeah. I, sometimes I think I've been accused of the, the irregular line breaks I'm afraid sometimes feel or look amateurish, um, but they still, they're what feel right to me i i know that's not a very i mean it's an it's hard for me to figure out why i do what i do yeah
0: it's just interesting because it it feels right too and i i was trying to think about why because people you know people who are listening love the um you know the technical details of poetry (laughs) and um and i was just trying to think of like what makes it that they work being varied like that and and i really couldn't like get my hand there's something about how like airy your poems are though and how they, they sort of float through consciousness, you know, like it, it's always coming back. You mentioned like writing out of the body earlier, and it's sort of always like seeing the landscape and then absorbing it and refracting it through in this way that's very like fluid or something. And so it fits really well with a, with a line that's not, like if it was rigid, it would feel wrong, you know, if they were all the same length, it wouldn't feel like free enough.
4: Yeah, that wouldn't be me. That isn't how my thought moves. It doesn't move in that kind of set pattern. But I, you know, I know that there are people and whom I respect a lot who write much more formally than me. But I, I'm, I'm interested in sound. I'm interested in off rhyme and consonants and assonants and all that stuff. So I'm paying a lot of attention to the music of the actual words rubbing up against each other and chiming and all that. That's what's going on mm-hmm. a lot.
0: Yeah. And, and um, do, you th- do you think uh, like the process of listening to the words in that way, um, is, it, is it from reading and having that sort of inner music going through you all the time? Is, is that what, you know, because I find that, that there's nothing that makes me want to write poems more than reading good poems. And then it's sort of the whatever's flowing in there and your brain is just it's like waves of things through your brain. And then it sort of starts coming out. Is that how it is for you?
4: Yes, exactly. Reading, reading good poems. And there are certain poets who kind of do that for me. Marie Howe is one of my people I go back to. And lately I've been reading a lot of Diane Seuss, who I think is gorgeous and brilliant. Um, but yeah, certain poets, it feels like it's, it flips a switch in my brain. If I spend a half an hour reading and kind of soaking my head in poetry, then naturally poetry is going to come out in the next half hour mm-hmm. if I can get that kind of time. or take that kind of time to do it. Um, Yeah, that's the best, most guaranteed way is to read some good poetry. And then, you know, sometimes you've read that book too many times and you need to find another one to kind of turn you on for the next one, but Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's hear another one. Okay,
4: I'll do something else from In the Time of Great Fires. Um, Let's see, I'll read this one. It's called Appetite. Um, for my young niece. The young girl in the photo is all knees and elbows, all blazing brilliance in her short velvet dress, next to the skinny boy with his arm crooked awkwardly around her waist. Both of them knew at this, leaning together like sunflowers that have shot up overnight, threatening to topple, lighting the sky with their hot gold. It's almost painful to watch the pure appetite shining out of her and remember again, the lively longing that buckled my knees and drove me around the bend for a few decades. Insatiable is what he called me, the lover who saw that thirst in me and didn't run away, but relished the reckoning as much as I did. So long ago, still, it's good to remember I was that greedy once. I wanted all of it, just as this girl will make her own way through the labyrinth. But oh, if I had some red thread to give her, or a handful of breadcrumbs—that's an appetite open. from appetite. Uh... Yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry. I keep forgetting to tell them page number. Appetite is on page sixty-four.
0: No, it's all right. And... I, I find it in time. <laughs> Um, so, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was just, um, the way I, I feel like your poems too, are sort of like, there's a lot of prayer involved. It feels mm. like what you're doing to me is, um, some kind of like a secular prayer, like, like a yeah. religion of, of language or something where you're, you're ex- acknowledging reality and then sort of describing it in that, in that sort of ancient logos kind of way, um, is that, is that, do you think of it like that way? Is it a kind of prayer? I know you're in our Buddhist poets issue. Yeah. Um, and so, so what do you think of spirituality and, and is poetry, your practice of spirituality?
4: I love that. I think what you just said is it. Um, but I, I didn't consciously formulate it that way. Yeah. I'm kind of a Jew boo. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I read Buddhist books. I, that's probably the religion I feel the most affinity for. And I'm a Jew. And I feel like we're a very um, reality-based religion in a lot of ways. Um, so those, those two spiritual practices inform me. And poetry, pro- probably the arts in general, poetry and music and theater and dance and improv are all kind of my ways of worship. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Secular, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so what
0: is it about that, though? Like, why do it? Like what, what is gain from it? That's the thing that I always try to come, like come back to is like, why, why do poets do poetry? Um, Cause it's something that doesn't like, like most of the, most of the, you know, our culture doesn't understand it at all. Right, and so you'll I get know. poems, you know, you'll <laughs> see poems that aren't poems at all and they'll, they'll be treated as poems because people don't even know what poems are or what, what art right. is in a way. Um, right. And, and so, so what is it like, what is it about, doing that kind of prayer that seems worthwhile and fulfilling?
4: That's, a, it's a great question. And I think when we do read good poetry, we feel something, you know, and it makes us, makes me feel alive It makes, and when you know, I just keep back coming back to this word alive, aliveness. When I'm, when I'm making art, when I'm moving, when I'm singing, when I'm, Creating poetry when I'm in connection, even having a good conversation with somebody where we're talking about things that matter, I feel more alive. I feel, you know, it, it's cellular and my brain is, you know, happy. <laughs> <laughs> happy, happy connections are happening in my brain. It's sparking. Um, and when I'm, you know, watching stupid TV, I don't feel alive. Mm-hmm. I feel numb and I feel, you know, deadened. And I don't, I don't like how that feels. So this feels better.
0: Yeah. And is that what draws you back to poetry when you, when you leave it?
4: Probably so. Yeah. And also the fight. I like, I like a good fight, you know, it's just wrestling with it, not getting it right, coming back to it, trying to get it better, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, wanting to really make something beautiful, just having that desire to make something that really works.
0: Yeah. How do you approach the, um, the, after the fact, after you have books, um or, or have manuscripts of books and poems published right. um how do you approach that like marketing angle and in trying to find a press for the book and because when you said struggle I, I first I thought you meant that of getting your work actually out into the world
4: well that too yeah it is a struggle I still is a struggle I've got four books in each one it was a struggle to write the poems and it was a struggle to get the thing published I'll struggle, struggle, struggle. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of struggle. Um, Yeah, I send to contests and I I get rejected and I don't win and I spend a lot of money on entry fees. And then every once in a while I win one. Mm -hmm. As you know, three out of the four books, that's how I got them. Desire Zoo, um, Luis Rodriguez, you know, wanted to publish it. So I was Mm -hmm. happy that Tia Chucha published it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's a beautiful book, too. I think that's my favorite cover I've seen in a long time. I don't know if I put it on screen yet. But um, yeah, that that is just a beautiful, beautiful cover. Um,
4: It's my friend Lauren Ari. um, Mm -hmm. And she has a website, I think it's um, laurenari.com. L-A-U-R-E-N-A-R-I. And she's a wonderful painter. And um, she's the one who picked this painting. I went over to her house, but I knew I wanted to use one of her paintings. And she was like, this one. And I thought, isn't that too busy? And she was like, no, this is going to work. And she was right.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um. So Aspen Crest, I'm not sure who that is, um, says, Desire Zoo is out of stock at Amazon. Is there anywhere we can buy it? Which is a good question.
4: Yes. Go to Tia Chucha Press. Ah, um, mm-hmm. And um yeah i'm so sorry i know and also in the time of great fires is temporarily out of stock but they're going to re they're going to do a reprint we we went through the first 500 mm-hmm. copies that were printed they're going to do another second printing
0: oh that's great so that's already like mm-hmm. a bestseller for poetry then cause... oh yeah bestseller <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. <copies>. <laughs> um, <laughs> right yeah uh, I'm laughing you... All the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, do you do you do a lot of readings? I mean, now we have to do you know virtual stuff. Still, it's starting to pick up. But but did you like doing readings before and, and performing the poems? You know, being in the yeah. improv troupe and having play yeah. experience. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I'm a ham. I like to perform. <laughs> I do. I'll, I'll you know yeah. If you invite me to read, I'll I'll come out and I'll read. Um, yeah, I like a, a big audience, and I like um, to say that I like to speak the poems. Some of them I know by heart. I always have an ambition to learn more of them by heart. And then I, you know, hard to memorize, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and one of the things that was interesting, that I just learned about you looking up, but um, your background is that you worked as a counselor, um, for, yeah. as an HIV counselor, and then as a drug and addiction counselor. Um, yeah. ha- has that informed your poetry at all? Like it, like, oh, yeah. like there's this whole concept of poetry as healing, which I find really fascinating. And, 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 And and the idea that creating narrative and the healing power of that is just, it's just such an important thing that the work of like James Pennebaker that, that, um, I can't remember the book he wrote, but, but that concept of, of just putting, you know, because the mind's always trying to make sense of your feelings, right? Right. And and your response and and the world that you've encountered. And, And once you can make sense of it, you can kind of store it away. And that's what writing does in a way. Yeah. So, so is that... So what was your experience like? Um, and I think that you were an HIV counselor at the, like the height of the HIV crisis, right? Is that what yeah, I read? It was.
4: Yeah, it was right in the – It was. A, I worked at a place called the Epicenter, which was in, located at San Francisco General Hospital in the 90s, like 94, which was – yeah, there, we didn't have the drugs then. You know, AZT was just coming on the scene, but they didn't have the sophisticated drug cocktails they have now, and, and HIV was pretty much of a death sentence considered to be one for most people. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, uh, it was such a good experience for me, and I think it's it was about listening. I mean, counseling is really about listening more than talking. So I don't uh, I think the listen, deep listening is a good quality to encourage in a, any artist to be a good listener, a mm-hmm. good observer, take things in deeply, and then I would digest them and then um, and then, you know, the quality of our lives is kind of determined by the stories that we tell ourselves about what's been happening to us and how we frame it and whether we can see it in a bigger, you know, with, with a bigger perspective or whether we're really, you know, locked into some smaller way of seeing things.
0: Yeah. Is it, um, who said, is it Nietzsche? who said that, that people don't have ideas, ideas have people. And it's kind of like the story that you tell, like drives, you know, how you respond to everything that you encounter later too. So that's why storytelling is just so important.
4: Yeah, exactly. And learning just that thing, learning that you have the power to change how you tell your story. You can't really change the facts of what happened to you, but you can change the frame around the facts and you can change the way you hold it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, let's see. We have maybe... 10 minutes normally i would say let's do a poem and then another question from the audience but i don't know if the audience is still here um but but we'll they'll be here later but let's do a poem and then and then talk a little bit more and then one last poem so two poems okay. left
4: all right great that's fine um let's see i'll do witch walk um there was this witch oh no i'll do braiding his hair um so my husband grew his hair really long and this poem is called braiding his hair and what page? Oh, and it's on page 79 of In the Time of Great Fires. Okay. Here we are each morning, my husband on our old kitchen chair, its upholstery mended with duct tape, his head bent forward while I comb out his long, wheat-colored hair. Not what I thought we'd be doing in our 60s, me dividing the wet silk of it, still stubbornly reddish gold, only a little white at the sideburns. Three thick hanks in hand I begin to plate, over, under, over, under. I don't remember when he stopped cutting his hair in the mirror and decided to let it grow long as a girl's. And he was mistaken for a girl once, a tall, stoop-shouldered man-girl, when he stood on the sidewalk, back-turned-to-the-street, and a car drove by, honking and cat-calling at him not me. We laughed, but I had to wonder, when did his tresses first spill over his shoulders, halfway to his waist? It must have happened while we slept, as most things do. And how did he come to sit before me so patiently now, head bowed while I brayed, as if he were the daughter I never had, and this my one chance to weave my bewildered care into each over, under, over,
0: under. I was braiding his hair,
4: braiding his
0: hair from yeah. in the, in the time of great fires. Yes. Um, uh, this poem or this book was sort of seven years in the making. If I did the math right, maybe, um, yeah. uh, what are you working on now? And, and is, is there a way that you, you know, cause the thing that's really interesting about your books is they feel very continuous too. Like, cause, oh, no. cause they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, they're very personal which means it's sort of like a a long, it feels almost like a extended autobiography in a way. Like, it's like, these (laughs) are the things I've encountered and then these are my sort of responses to them. Um, And and so they feel connected. Um, Do you, do you have like stuff you're working on now? Um, And is it sort of a continuation of this or do you have like projects that are, that are different too?
4: Yeah, I have, I do have projects. I have a bunch of projects going on right now. I'm I'm writing a musical um, and I, did a song cycle with a. I've, I'm working with two different composers doing lyrics, and then I've been really diving into music personally. My husband's a musician, and you know, during the pandemic, when it was just him and me in our house, we started playing music together a lot. And I, I mean, he's much more advanced musically than me, so he plays piano really well and guitar really well, and I, I, I sing and i got better singing because we practiced and practiced and practiced and then i started taking voice lessons on zoom um and um really kind of doing a deep dive into music so that's been the latest project and and then the poems are reflecting that i've been writing about that um and yeah yeah uh, what do you think
0: is the difference mm-hmm. between music and poetry like like is there there's something to melody that you know that's extra it's way more data of course than a poem yeah. has yeah um, so, so but, uh, I don't know, but it feels like it's drawn from the same source at the same time. So, so how yeah. is that, what is that, how do you conceive of that relationship, that, that relation, you know, they're, they're similar, but one is much more, uh, much more, you know, rich with, with data.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, the melody and the breath and all that. Um, well, I mean, I, lo- I'm, I'm a sucker for good lyrics. You know, I love a song with good lyrics and writing and trying to be a lyricist now, I, you know, it's a whole different discipline. Then you really do have to be formal. Your lines really do have to, um, you know, match um, usually. And and you and there's rhymes if you're doing that. And you know, so there's all that discipline in it. Um, but I think the feeling of freedom, the feeling of freedom and and just something coming out that needs to come out is the same in both you know it's something really from the gut that wants to come out through the breath is the same and the first poems were sung you know when poetry first started like a million years ago whenever it started they they were singers Mm -hmm. you know and actually the first language was sung and then you know then i don't know it started to be spoken but the first language is you know when we were cave people was yeah. was a singing language yeah. yeah
0: that's the first thing i thought when they found that um that dragon man um you know the the sort of not neanderthal that were more closely related to i wonder if, if they sung you know
4: yeah yeah uh did you ever see that movie quest for fire i, like, I haven't Ray no
0: no quest for fire. oh you
4: hmm. gotta get it it's so good and um They they hired a bunch of linguists and archaeologists and, you know, anthropologists to try and reconstruct a language that might have been what the very first language was, you know. And it was a sung kind of thing. It's tonal. And, you know, a lot of Asian languages are tonal Mm -hmm. still. I'm
0: going to have to find that. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, Two quick questions, then one last poem. Um, So who since you mentioned songwriters, who is your favorite songwriter as a as a lyricist?
4: Oh, my God. Like, so like who, many. Yeah. Don't make me choose one. <laughs>
0: Don't choose I one. Mean, just sp- say a couple.
4: Yeah, I'll just say some names. I mean, they're the names everybody would say. You know, Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. and, um, uh, You know, Dolly Parton's a pretty good songwriter. Yeah, I is, really yeah. like her mm-hmm. songs. Uh, there's some amazing songs. You know, Paul McCartney, John Lennon. You know, they're not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's some amazing songwriters out there. I think some of the most beautiful work is being done uh, by them. Um, oh man, you know've I've just been listening to Tuck and Patty and Patty Cathcart um, writes a lot of their songs and some of them are gorgeous. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's something that I kind of feel jealous about that I was thinking about too with music is that you're because you have the melody to anchor you and and you know all the music yeah. that's swirling around you can go in such farther directions and there's so many great songs where there are lines that you have no idea what they're actually talking about right um, but you still have that thread to hold you and so there's sort of like a freeing way that that um, lyrics have that that poetry doesn't like you you have to keep the grounding within like the scene or the voice, you know, you can't like leave too far within a poem.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, some lines that are in, in songs are, are well, and, and also the thing I'm jealous of with song, with songwriters is those, Oh, um, simon and garfunkel i mean paul simon is an amazing songwriter he might be one of my favorites but those those lines are engraved in our brains in a way because of the melody you know has kind of so we we know the lyrics i know whole chunks of lyrics by heart whereas i don't i can't recite so i have friends who can recite lots of poems by heart but i have song lyrics by heart yeah.
0: And and one last question, because everybody always asks, even though people are so far behind in the video, they can't ask yet. Um, I mean, what poets are you reading right now? Like, who? Uh, what is the last book that you just were like,
4: wow? Diane Seuss, Sonnet, mm. Frank Sonnets is amazing. That is an incredible book. That book knocked me on my ass. I just haven't recovered yet from that book. I love it. Um, I've been reading. Um, well, I've been. Te- it's e- that's an easy question to answer because I've been teaching um, poems, poetry online, and um, I. What's her name? Na- Natalie Diaz. The postcolonial love poem is an amazing book. It just won the Pulitzer, and I taught it um, a couple weeks ago. And um, oh god, Nikki Finney's latest book, the um, Love Child's. What is something? I'm sorry, my brain is just. Yeah, I'm yeah. not thinking of it either.
0: But but yeah, well will be enough to find it for sure. Yeah,
4: Nikki Finney is great. Um, yeah, but I am really entranced by Diane Seuss and what she's doing right now with the sonnet form. I and mean, she's taken this form, the sonnet form, and she's stretched it and she's packed it. It's like in in her hands, the sonnet is like a bomb. It's just they expl- each of these things just explode. Um, and talk about courageous. They're incredibly courageous in terms of the content. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, well, let's finish up with one last poem. What do you want to read to end it? You
4: know, I was thinking about, um, I don't know if I can find it again. The poem that I published in Rattle right after uh, the 45th president was uh, sworn in and we had the first of many um, women's marches and it's called What We Did in the Resistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this poem got published in Rattle. It was one of the readers, writers' respond uh, poems. And it went a little bit viral. A lot of people passed it around. Um, and so this was published in, I think, uh, 2017. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. after. The,
6: yeah.
4: So what we did in the resistance. In the beginning, we wept. Well, some of us wept. Some of us walked around stunned as if pieces of sky had fallen out of the sky and revealed themselves to be chunks of blue plaster. We examined the chunks. We shook plaster dust out of our hair. There was so much dust. We craned our necks and stared up. Now we saw the scaffolding, the, what do you call it, sheetrock? The drywall, the lath we saw the insulation full of asbestos. We saw how the walls were stuffed with it like money. Everything was revealed, yet nothing was clear. If we were in a cunningly devised structure not of our making, was it a theater or a prison, a shopping mall or a mausoleum? In the beginning, as I have said, we wept. We embraced on the street when we saw each other. We sat in cafes, drinking coffee, digesting our grief. The rest of the time, we sat in front of glowing screens. We gathered at night and made signs, not my president, and pussy grabs back. We stapled them to sticks and marched in exultation all over the world. We had never seen before how many of us there are. We clicked and liked and signed and donated and called our congresspeople and sent postcards and checks. We spoke of girding ourselves for the long fight. We spoke of a marathon. We spoke of walking in the footsteps of the elders. We spoke of coal miners in Kentucky and Pennsylvania who had voted for Trump. And still, the cat box needed to be cleaned, the oil in the car changed, classes taught, bills paid, dishes washed. And still the rains came down epically, biblically, we joked about end times, and the witching trees with their bare black branches sprouted the tiniest of new buds, almost invisible at first, a red tip at the nodes, a subtle fire, and then overnight purple blossoms, trees who know nothing of elections, who speak only of persistence. For despite everything, Earth continued to turn from light to darkness and into light again, over and over it rolled as it had been rolling through generations of empire and uprising, extinction and evolution. And once again, to our surprise, we noticed that it was spring.
0: Yeah, I love that ending. A beautiful poem, What We Did in the Resistance. Um, Alice Luterman, thanks so much for being a guest and uh, joining us today. Now, it's just been a pleasure Thank hearing you your poems and, and, and your thoughts on poetry. Really, really wonderful.
4: Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. So it was
0: Alison Luterman. Her two latest books are um, The Desire Zoo Poems. Now, that's from um, Teochuka Press. And you can find it there at their website, which is not on the back of the book, but you can find it. And uh, in the time of great fires, um, the newest 2020 winner of the catamaran prize. Um, so I'm gonna try. I, I'm, I've been troubleshooting as we do this interview, trying to figure out what the issue is because my my stream is fine, and um, my speed test. Look at this. I'll, I'll even show you. This is how much bandwidth I have at my house. Um, we have we have 700 megabytes per second down and 900 megabytes per second up. So it's ne- definitely not my connection. Um, so it must be, the only thing I can think is the problem might be the caster server that I use to make sure, so to feed the, um, the signal out to every different, different, um, um, thing. So I'm, what I'm going to do is try to, I'm going to stop the stream for a second, try to reconnect and maybe we'll get like a different computer in their server bank. I think they're having some outage issue, um, at caster. That's my, that's my last thing I can think that's going on. So let me pause the stream and I'll be right back. We should be back now. Um, everything looks like it's running. So I don't know if um, maybe that fixed it or maybe it didn't. I think people are so far behind on the video that, um, <laughs> yeah, I think people are so far behind. Like we were 20 minutes ahead um, of you or, or something. We were we were poems ahead as I was watching the little preview window of stream. Um, so maybe... Um, I don't know, so we'll see I was recording the whole thing locally though So what I will do is get the video And just post the video as a new video And then um, that should be good uh, Let's see But we'll see if we can do an open mic I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure if it's going to work uh, But if you would like to call in I'll put the numbers up on the screen What a frustrating day um, I'll put the numbers up, up on the screen right now um, So email your poem to openmic@rattle.com. at rattle.com. Um, that's M I C at Rattle.com. Um, and then once I have the poem, I can show it on the screen. And uh, then you call in either over Skype, and hopefully it'll work. We'll see. Or uh, over the regular phone. So over Skype, send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word. Over the phone, 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times and hang up. And um, and we'll see how, how it goes. And I'll call you back when the time is right. So let's go... Um, I don't think I'm going to bother doing a break because I've been fiddling with things so much. Um, Let me just do the... uh, I'll tell you what the prompt poem is for this week. Um, The prompt for this week was right here. Write a poem in which the speaker is aboard a moving train. So that's your prompt for this week. Um, Write a poem in which the speaker is aboard a moving train. And um, I um, wrote about... The only thing I could think of, it was a tough one, I thought. Um, you know, cause I don't think I've ever been on a train actually, except for like the little, little trains around, like, uh, you know, with the kids, little kitty trains at, at train museums and things like that. Um, so I don't know. So I was thinking about it and what came to mind was, um, Einstein's, um, train. Um, and, and I don't know if I can explain it. Um, I don't even understand general relativity to be honest, um, uh, but, but one of the things that Einstein did with this thought experiment where he imagined sitting on a platform and a train going by at like half the speed of light. And um, if you had a light on top of the train that like somebody was holding, like a light bulb, and you turn it on um, from the observer, from the person who was sitting on top of the train, um, the light would spread across the train at the same um, at the same speed. And so it would fill up the train in the same amount of time. Um, in both both the forward and backward direction, but um, from Einstein's perspective, sitting on the train on the train station, um, seeing the train go by, because the light is like because the train's moving, um, the light would hit the uh, the back corner first before the front corner, and that's how how he conceived of time being relative and and frame of reference being important. And then they worked out, like, I think, Lagrange equations and things like that eventually to explain it all. And um, So that's what I was thinking of, though, is this this thought experiment that Einstein had. Um, And so here's my poem, uh, Einstein's Train. Einstein's Train. He's placed you inexplicably on the roof when the comfort of the dinner car would do. And it's empty now, but for the waiters waiting over the empty tables. You're tied to the center of the train's mass for safety's sake. All of it's speeding now. At half the speed of light, the trees in the distance stretching to hedgerows, the sun a blunt dagger in the sky, the world you left red shifting, the future fading past violet. And there's Einstein at the station, leaning forward in his little bench, when the bulb in your lips flashes, the photons flowing out in every direction to the edges of the train's once dark roof, simultaneously but not in sync, and Einstein leaps through the wild silhouette of his hair in excitement. He seems to be shouting, but all of the sound and whatever it means remains lost in the air. So that is my, my poem, uh, Einstein's Train. And here was Megan's poem, Every Time I See a Train. Every time I see a train, I imagine I'm on it, not inside but on top, jumping from one car to the next like stones across a river, and then lying down, my body a boat, in that rushing metal current, the world so fast and me so still. That is Megan's imagist-type poem, every time I see a train. Um, and now let's see what you have, if we can get the open lines going. Um, let's see. So uh, let's do Richard Westheimer, because you know, he's a usual, he's a regular. Uh, we will see if everything's working for him. Maybe we get an update. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Good.
7: I don't think I've ever seen you exasperated before. But, yeah, uh, that...
0: the, whole, the whole time. I mean, the whole time I've been trying to figure out what was going on. I've been testing different connections and, and looking at the different streams, trying to keep a conversation going. Oh, it's, it was it's been a very frustrating night. And, and I think if anybody watches back the video, there's some great poetry and great insights that Allison had. Um, so I, what I'm going to do, it's recorded locally. And, and I think I'll just repost the whole video as its own video. And that should work fine. So, um, so we'll, we'll see. I don't know what the experience must have been like. But, but I thought it was just... I mean, the first thing you check is if it's one platform or the other. And it was uh, every platform. So, um, yeah. So so it must have been Caster. And I think what happened is they probably have like a, a c- c- computer in their server bank that's out. Or like broken. <laughs> and we were going through that. Um, and so reconnecting, I, I should have thought of it, but it took the whole show to to figure out what it was. I think that's what it was. Anyway.
7: Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad the connection between you and Allison worked out because what I heard of the interview was.
0: Yeah, oh, I... yeah, it's a good one. So the podcast will work fine on you know iTunes and all that stuff. And I'll post the videos on Facebook and YouTube just on their own. And that'll be fine. Um, so, so what do you want to share with us, Richard?
7: Um, so I do have my um, uh, Poets Respond poem, A Day Under the Broken Sky. Ah, perfect um, okay which uh did respond uh like some others to some of the emergence of information about some of the families under the mm-hmm. under the wreckage of the uh of the towers yeah do, you know, do
0: you know how many people they found so far i i is like in the 20s or is it even more than that now yeah i i
7: don't know yeah um it it uh, it it is still current news, you know it still kind of leads and i th- yeah. I think there's you know obviously there's a lot of things that could lead the news, but I think there's some some sense that people have there, but for the grace of God, go I yeah for sort sure. of sense and this whole sense of of you know doing the most ordinary thing you could possibly do, you know, eating dinner or sleeping and, mm-hmm. and being ripped out from underneath. yeah, you. yeah,
0: it's just it's hard to even imagine. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's hear this. A day under the yeah. broken sky.
7: Yeah. So, so just real quick, the I, I don't know if folks are familiar with that with the I Ching. You know, here's my little copy of it okay. from college days, but I you know I thought of those towers as sort of like an I Ching mm. uh, hexagram. Thus, thus the um, um, the epigraph, a day under the broken sky, and the epigraph is P holding together above the abysmal water, below the receptive earth, I Ching, hexagram eight. One, beneath the rubble is a body, beneath the body is rubble, beneath the rubble is a body of one child missing her dolly, a body of one mother missing the hand of one child, missing her mother, as the building is slung to the ground, shattered like a giant vase, scattered for the rescue crew to try to join one child with one doll, with one mother, to rejoice if the litany of the crushed were too fewer. Two, we sleep on feather beds covered in soft sheets, tucked in like dragons, hiding between I Ching trigrams, the abysmal arousing thunder, heaven above, slashes of concrete below, and below and below that the earth and below that crumbling columns three rescuers dig through layers of time sift from a mountain of dust the bones of marcus find the parts of annalee a doll's hand they place like a rose petal but the remain by uh, by the remains of emma next to the body of her sister lucia I conjure kintsugi masters might arrive, mend the broken bodies with lacquer and golden thread. Four, a big guy in a yellow helmet, his gray caked face streaked with tears, sits on a pile of concrete and sobs, collects himself, stands, picks up his pickaxe, keeps picking at one small chunk at a time. Ear cocked after each swing, divining for signs. Five, Atlas was given one task to keep the sky from falling. Six, the sky is falling. Uh,
0: What an ending. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. Great poem.
7: Uh, Thanks, Tim.
0: And I I did send in a copy of the Billy Collins
7: poem, Velocity, which I couldn't i since i had read that sometime previously i couldn't actually write another poem because it's <laughs> like the perfect on a train poem
0: yeah um do you want to read that
7: uh it's up to you I yeah can,
0: sure uh, why don't you do that and let me let me um i
7: yeah. sent it in the uh
0: i see uh, it, yeah i got it here so velocity uh, yeah this is the billy collins poem
7: yeah um velocity In the club car that morning, I had my notebook open on my lap and my pen uncapped, looking every inch the writer, right down to the little writer's frown on my face. But there was nothing to write about except life and death and the low warning sound of the train whistle. I did not want to write about the scenery that was flashing past, cows spread over a pasture, hay rolled up meticulously, Things you see once and will never see again. But I kept my pen moving by drawing over and over again the face of a motorcyclist in profile for no reason I can think of. A biker with sunglasses and a weak chin, leaning forward, helmetless, his long, thin hair trailing behind him in the wind. I also drew many lines to indicate speed, to show the air becoming visible as it broke over the biker's face. The way it was breaking over the face of the locomotive that was pulling me towards Omaha and whatever lay beyond Omaha for me, uh, all the other stops to make before the time would arrive to stop for good. We must always look at things from the point of view of eternity. The college theologians used to insist for from which I imagine we would all appear to have speed lines trailing behind us as we rush along the road of the world. As we rush down the long tunnel of time, the biker, of course, drunk on the wind, but also the man reading by a fire speed lines coming off his shoulder in his book. And the woman standing on the beach, studying the curve of the horizon, even the child asleep on a summer night, speed lines flying from the posters of her bed, from the white tips of the pillowcases, and from the edges of her perfectly motionless body.
0: Yeah, it's a great poem. Uh, That's Velocity by Billy Collins. Um, He's Billy Collins for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, he is. (laughs) Well, thanks Uh, for sharing that, Richard. Yeah.
7: Uh, thank you, Tim. You have a good, good, be, a better week than you had. Uh, yeah, the
0: last hour and a half has been rough, but it's it's peaceful now. Like everything works. <laughs> I yes. think it looks like it. So, good. Uh, oh well. Have a have okay. a good one, Richard. Thanks. You too. Okay, bye. bye. So, Richard Westheimer with uh, two poems: a Billy Collins poem and then one of his own. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's call up uh, Grace Ferran, and I should say I always. Um, I have to let you know that I am calling from the future, and it may be, may be like 20 minutes into the future now with all the buffering and the delays we were having on the stream. So uh, so make sure when I call you through the phone or through Skype, whichever it is, make sure that um, you hang up or, or mute wherever you're watching this right now because uh, otherwise there will be a delay. That The delay gets confusing. And because of the delay, you can't read the poem from the screen either. So you have to... Uh, have your own copy. You can't watch the video because you'll be 30 seconds or a minute or or 20 minutes maybe um, off of where the, uh, where the uh, stream is. So let me call up. Um, I just got another email. So I'm pretty sure Grace Farron is here. Yeah. And let's call up Grace. Hey, Grace. Hi. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah.
6: Of course. I'm so excited that this platform exists.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, so where are you calling from?
6: I'm in Southern Vermont right now.
0: Ah, Excellent. And what did you want to share tonight?
6: Um, So I wasn't sure that I had found the right prompt poem, mm-hmm. so I just decided to share one of my own. Um, this poem is about um, a guy that I met um, when I was traveling on my own. And um, he kind of seemed perfect at first on paper, but then as we spent time together, I realized just how totally wrong for me he was. Uh Um, And so, but we had this one beautiful, perfect day um, that I'll always cherish. And so this poem is kind of about that, but then like, how you can have a perfect thing with something that then ends up being kind of like the wrong thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing this. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready. I'll have it on screen for everybody right
6: now. Okay. It's called Jay. Recite me your poetry in the dark and I'll wait with dripping ears. Your big body is sometimes almost too much to bear, but we have the whole ocean to hold us. I am the waves, and you are the storm clouds, and together we are the sickly sweet sea foam green, the radioactive ocean, ready for the rain. I'll breathe in your heady curls again, thrust my body against the shore, bow and stern and rope and anchor. It is only us and the ghosts that walk these beaches anymore.
0: A hey, great poem and, and great images, uh, drawing through the entire piece. Uh, how, how long have you been writing? What? I'm having <laughs> a bad day. Um, so, so how long have you been writing? Uh, and and what what drew you to poetry? Just uh, since you're a first-time caller.
6: oh uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I, I've been, I wrote poems, kind of a lot as a child, um, but then I kind of like it left me for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I just kind of disconnected from that part of myself. Um, I did have this like one night in college where I stayed up all night writing haikus about like my friends and reality television. And, (laughs) (laughs) but it was very much a one-off. But about two years ago, um, a friend of mine got me on like an email chain of a 30 day like writing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, like allison was talking about where you just do a poem every day um and that really reignited my love of writing poetry and since then i've just been writing um a bunch just all the time about everything and and trying to challenge myself to write like um i haven't been writing every day but to write often even if I don't feel like there's anything there mm-hmm. just to kind of like put pen to paper and try and get something out um but I I I love it and I'm so grateful to have poetry back in my life
0: again yeah. well I'm so glad you are and I hope you can share uh, more poems and uh in the future
6: yeah thank you I would love to
0: yeah thanks so much nice to meet you
6: yeah you too good night good night
0: if that was Grace Farron uh, her poem was Jay um, and let's see, who should we call up next? Um, let's see, I'm going to try to get um, a little confirmation that people are here. Um, but I know Carla Schwartz is here because she just called. So I'll call up because I'm assuming people dropped out. Um, if you haven't dropped out because of the stream difficulties, you guys are troopers and I love you. I love you either way, but it's really nice. Hey, Carla, I how are you doing second. tonight?
8: Okay, I just had to mute you. Perfect. Hi, thanks. Thank you for calling me. Yeah,
0: I'm so glad Um, we could have you.
8: (laughs) Yeah, I was very flustered tonight, I have to tell you, with everything, trying to watch and listen.
0: Yeah, well, it's a good maybe, uh, you know, you can always get the podcast version and then just listen to it sometime maybe to catch what you missed, I guess.
8: Um, Or on YouTube, too, you know, and and actually, I like sometimes watching on YouTube, I do it one and a half speed, and it really, you know, so... because people like me, you can hear me talking right now. I'm kind mm-hmm. of pausing. It's nice to do it at a little faster pace and you still get the whole thing. So
0: Yeah, that's so funny you said it because I actively try to talk slower than I normally do. I, end up, I, I, <laughs> I listen to myself and I realize I talk way too fast. I, I'm not, I wasn't meant for being a radio host, that's for sure. <laughs> so um, Well,
8: so sp- when, when I saw you on Facebook, because I went to Facebook tonight too, um, I also can read lips and I could tell that you were out of sync with what you were saying. And I was like, Oh wow. You know, this is really kind of crazy. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, fortunately it's all recorded. So I'll just repost the the full video. Um, it will be great. I'm sure it'll be great. Yeah. So it'll just be like in a different spot or something, but you'll, you'll be able to find it on Facebook and YouTube uh, again. So what did you want to share tonight, Carla?
8: So, um, I, I wrote this thing last week and I had the train thing in mind and um, But it's really like a song, and it's very um, um, raw, <laughs> okay? Interesting, yeah. But uh, uh, I'm going to read it, and it's called Love You to the End of the Earth.
0: Okay, I've got it up. Go ahead whenever you're ready.
8: I love you as the blue whale loves its krill. I love you like a fast train to Seville. I love you like a storm caught off guard that spins our boat around like we're in Oz. I feed you Thailand spoon by spoon, Mexico, Spain, and India too. Sometimes I melange one with another. You know how far I travel with you. Here, love, a spoon to your lips. Here, love, a storm we must endure. To the count of three, we take a dip, cool our skin, staunch the fever.
0: Oh, very good. I love that, Carla. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it's kind of what we were talking about, if you caught it, about music at the end, where you're sort of free having a music-type form to sort of go a little bit farther out than you would otherwise, you know?
8: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And the other thing about this is um, when I first started to write it, I was actually thinking about the fact that I did once take a train to Seville and it went, it was the fast train and it went so fast that I actually, it, I was basically not knocked, knocked off my feet. I couldn't stand up.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I've after, never experienced that. Yeah.
8: And um, so that kind of, even though that's not in there, it is behind what I wrote. So
0: yeah, very interesting. <laughs> well, well, thanks. I'm so glad you could share that Carla.
8: All right. Take care. Bye. Yeah. Bye. You too. Good night. Bye.
0: yeah that was Carla Schwartz with love you to the end of the earth. Okay, and then let's go to another caller. Let's do Julian Matthews. Because we missed him last time. Let's catch up with Julian this time. Hey, Julian, how you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, so, how are the? You know, you're in. Uh, where are you? Uh, you good tonight.
9: Uh, let me just uh, switch. I'm, you. How are you? Uh, I'm in Malaysia.
0: Yeah, that's right, Malaysia, and and so how was the stream for you? Was it? Cho- I'm just trying to figure out if it was just certain servers that were messed up, or was it was it choppy for you too?
9: Yeah, it was choppy for me. I was switching between Facebook and YouTube, but, and it uh, just didn't work anywhere. Because... Yeah.
0: Okay, so it must have been uh, it must have been caster then, which because I send it out to caster, and then they send it to all the different uh, different servers. So uh, okay, well, so what do you have to share for us tonight?
9: Uh I have. Uh, a couple of poems I sent you. <laughs> so a prompt poem uh, on the train and called Face It, and another one called uh, There Will Be No Statue, which is the, a response to Princess Diana's statue.
0: Okay, let me... Uh... Okay, so let's do Face It first. I just pulled that up, and that was the... Uh...
9: Prompt poem about the train.
0: Okay, yeah, so Face It. Let's do Face It then, and I'll go ahead whenever you're ready
9: there are some uh, Malay words in it, but I think people can uh, figure it out from the reading. Perfect. So, face it. So the kid in the LRT calls me uncle and offers his seat. I despair. It isn't the first time. I relent, nod, and give in. I sit on the seat with a little white icon. The pregnant woman, the woman with a baby, the old man with a cane, the OKU, disabled. Station Barikutnya, Dang Wangi. The train pulls into another stop, not mine. Then it pulls out, and I spot the warped, skewed reflection of my face in the opposite window. When did my hair go so grey? The obvious giveaway for my uncle. How did my face get so ruddy? The ravages of a pimply teenager. A reminder when appearances and blemishes mattered, and I was my own Dr. Pimple Papa. Now it's the surface of a moon, not ours, but a distant forgotten asteroid-scarred one, a dirty brown one like the moons of Neptune or the demoted Pluto, or maybe Uranus, or mine. And when did the shape of my face lose its roundness, that clean, polished, cherubic look, the kind that aunties would pull me closer as a child just to pinch my cheeks? Now it's longer, sullen, and cheerless, the side of a granite hill the calcified limestone face that has been quarried and blasted, or the kind paleontologists chip away at to look for fossils. And right smack in the middle is the large, bulbous monstrosity, something Neanderthal, something from a horror movie, a clown's nose I could just paint red and show up as the entertainment at a children's party. Sniff, sniff. And those lips, dry and wilted, not smiley, hopeful as before, lips that parted way too much for always speaking my mind, and those cynical, faraway eyes, no longer bright, optimistic like the child I once was. I heard a writer once say, "I'm every age I've ever been." Ditto, I'm every age I ever was. Maybe not on the outside, but on the inside. Then the train announces the next stop, "Saman Bahagia," and I get off.
0: Uh, excellent poem. I love that. I can definitely relate. <laughs> Thanks, that was <coughs> <your> face it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, but really well done. Thanks for sharing that, Julian. Um, and what was the other one? The other one uh, was a, a Poetry Spawn poem, right?
9: Uh, yeah, this one, Mars. If a rock on Mars grabs open and no one sees it.
0: Yeah, so so what, what inspired this one?
9: So there is a rock on Mars which the rover Perseverance spotted, and mm-hmm. it cracked. And sadly enough, the, the person who posted it on Twitter from NASA suggested it's a butt-crack <laughs> oh, rock.
0: Oh, gosh.
9: <laughs> and, I felt, and all the news carried it, and I felt real sympathy for the rock.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would too. <laughs> okay, thanks for it. Uh, let's hear this. This is, uh, if a rock on Mars cracks open and no one sees it. Go ahead with that one.
9: If a rock on Mars cracks open and no one sees it. If a poem is written but never seen, does the universe still read it? If a song is composed but never played, does the universe still hear it? If art is created but never exhibited, does the universe still appreciate it? If a dream is dreamed but no one remembers it, does the universe still awaken to it? If a rock on Mars craps open and no one sees it, does the universe still care? Oh, rock on Mars, we earthlings, scientists no less, discover you after millennia yet still choose to insult you. Isn't it just like the human colonist mentality to make fun of the natives, to infantilize your brokenness, to invalidate your existence, to excavate your insides and rip your Martian heart out? If a rock on Mars cracks open and no one sees it, does the universe still care for you? Yes, it does. I do. You are the one you are no one's primal fault. The universe peers into your soul and sees the shiny center. It cradles cradles your alluvial despair in its sturdy hand. It proceeds your rough edges as only poetry. It lowers its ear to your fissure and hears you sing. And when it is quiet late at night, and you cry alone, it lulls you to sleep and paints
0: you a Venusian dream. Thanks so much for sharing that one, too. That was surprisingly touching. I thought it was going to go in a different direction. I felt that very moving. Thanks so much for sharing that, Julian.
9: Thank you, Tim.
0: Yeah, always a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. So Julian Matthews with uh, two poems, If a Rock on Mars Cracks Open and No One one Sees It. Um, We're caught up in the time that we should be ending, but with so many mess ups I'm just happy everything's working right now so let's just roll for a little extra little extra bonus time but Dave's still not uh not here um Dave Cook's still here though David Cook let's call up David Cook (laughs) hey David I hear myself in the background so I'm gonna meet you for a second but that is very reassuring to know that you're uh, lined up pretty closely
10: I'm still here let me get the video going okay I didn't get a chance to take a shower, so I'm a little filthy.
0: Well, that's all right. Yeah, it's been a while, David. What have you been up to lately?
10: I have a landscape maintenance business. Mm -hmm. And so I just, after, I think uh, it was March of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and I just, my business didn't slow down at all. So I was just out weeding and mowing and um, getting everybody's yard all set up because mm-hmm. everybody was out in their yards because we yeah. didn't get any any rain in Oregon. Yeah.
0: So, well, that's so. kind of what it was like at Rattle. I mean, there was no slowdown. There was a, a speed up. Yeah. Everybody was sending in poems. There was no break. No, uh, yeah. Uh, but it was, it's great to see you again, though, because it's really it's been a year, I think, since you've been on. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's sad to say at this time of year, though, but, you, or, you know, with the pandemic, you think, God, I hope I hope David Cook's OK. It's been a while. <laughs> you know, you just never know. Um, so I'm so glad to see you. Uh, what did you want to share tonight?
10: Um, this Saturday is the uh, 36th anniversary of the sinking of the um, Rainbow Warrior, which was a Greenpeace ship oh. uh, that was uh, sunk by French um uh, government forces uh, that they had some They're basically their their um, secret uh, like, like the CIA I guess mm-hmm. um, put a couple of bombs on the on the vessel and and sank it uh, when it was in when it was docked in Auckland New Zealand and it just kind of I've I learned about that and I just thought you know that's it was done by a Western, Western nation, mm-hmm. you know, and they just did it because they wanted to be able to stop the protests of the nuclear weapons being tested in the South Pacific,
2: mm-hmm.
10: and uh, they killed a journalist. And wow,
2: uh, yeah,
0: yeah, and then it's in. I, it's, I haven't heard about that in I don't know fifteen twenty years. You know, it's not something that the news you know that you hear about, but but yeah, yeah. What a what an event.
10: And I don't think things have changed that much as far as, you know, governments trying to get away with, uh, you know, subterfuge like that.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, it go- and it goes back, you know, f- forever. That's just how, you know, the United Fruit and, <laughs> and yes, remember yeah. the Maine, you know, I remember the Maine, things like that. Um, yeah, so let's hear this. This is fixed. I'll, I'll put okay. it up.
10: Fixed in memoriam of photographer and father, Fernando Pereira, killed in the sinking of the Greenpeace ship, the Rainbow Warrior, July 10, 1985. Someday all this will have to be developed, carefully printed, fixed. Christopher Isherwood, goodbye to Berlin, 1939. He is a camera with his shutter, his lenses and filters, battery of flashes, memory makers, soul keepers, Names sounding as solid as horse bones, pentax, minolta, cannon. It is no wonder Pereira went back to the darkening hold of the rainbow warrior, tools laid out to rescue his living. Did he step into the flooding bilge like photographic paper, slaking silver bromide dreams, bound and drowned with his camera straps? Did the second flash of the limpet mine reveal a minuscule moon as a lens for the heavens? Did he see his children's covered eyes, their peekaboo, as camera obscura? Did he focus on seeing life as a series of stills, each day an aperture? Shame, even for the name, Operation Satanic, for Mitterrand's attempt to etiolate the exposure, dodge his solemn oaths, for draping his head like a photographer, hooded. Under a napkin, sepia teeth gnashing on the grit of Ortolan bones.
0: Oh, excellent poem, and a great thing to be reminded of. Um, what is this uh, at the very bottom, poetry boxes? Take a poem, leave a poem, take a moment.
10: Oh, that's the, uh, I have a website, and I, I make poetry boxes um, uh, for that. They're kind of like the free libraries. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they hold poems. And oh, your cool. actually Rattle magazine is really a good source for for the poems because uh, they're usually about the right length mm-hmm. to fit on an eight and a half by eleven, and they're usually um, appropriate for you know the whole neighborhood to read.
0: Uh huh. Wow, that's very so, cool. That's a great idea.
10: Yeah, that's PoetryBoxes dot com. Yeah, poetryboxes.com.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> poetryboxes.com. yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's a, a cool idea. Thanks. Uh, thanks, David. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Thank yeah. you yep. for sticking in there. And
5: <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm thanks thanks for people who are sticking with it in the audience. So I, I really thought that we'd have no open lines. I, that's what I was thinking is at the end, I thought, well, no one's going to be here. <laughs> so I'm glad you were. Thanks, David and everybody else too. Yeah. Yeah. It's good always night. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Great really to see you again, David.
10: Good thing going here.
0: Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. It was David Cook with fixed, uh, about the, uh, The Sinking of the Greenpeace Ship Rainbow Warrior. That was July 10th, 1985. So this is the, uh, what would that make it? 36, oh my gosh, 36 years. Um, Okay, let's do, uh, let's call up Angela. I'm just going sort of in reverse order this time. Um, Yeah, we have a lot of open lines too, actually. So we'll see how many people we can get to. Um, Here's Angela Gardner. Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. Great to hey, see still great you. Still hanging out here too.
11: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <great. laughs> I think I hear myself in the background. So mute. Okay, that's just, better. That's better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Thanks for hanging out too. I I appreciate. It. I guess I guess people were uh, vigilant.
11: <laughs> <laughs> we're always vigilant. We're always here at Rattle. Your Rattle community is dedicated. So. Well,
0: thanks. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I really thought we were just talking to nobody toward the end of that interview. So uh, it's, it's really great to see everybody still here. Um, so what did you want to share tonight?
11: Well, I just wanted to share my Poets Respond poem. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
11: It's about the exorcism for dead trees at Home Depot.
0: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that. I remember it was one of those where I read the article, but tell, tell me wh- about it.
11: Well, basically, I guess these people went into Home Depot and um, around PA and they went in there and had a seance and, it, and for the lumber. Mm-hmm. So it was like an exorcism for the dead trees. It was it just became big news. And actually, it's funny because it came into my local news network in Ohio because, I mean, it just came big news because the police blotter, it just had a little line on the police blotter and then it kind of blew up. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's and it's really just. I think it's probably some YouTubers who are doing something silly, but I mean,
0: <laughs> I think everything they, is these days.
11: <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I think it's really that, but basically, yeah, they just they told the police that they were doing an exorcism for. The, the trees in the lumber aisle and then they had to they got kicked out they had mm. no charges or anything but it was just a, you know i love the police blotters like they always have some interesting stuff so
0: is that from being a journalist looking at the police blotter
11: oh yeah i just
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
11: I'm a news junkie i just uh-huh. i just look at everything so <laughs>
0: okay well go ahead and whenever you're ready uh exorcism for the dead trees
11: Exorcism for the dead trees. In the lumber aisle of Home Depot, they chanted for the once young seedlings whose roots grew old. The tree was home to the squirrels who stored their summer bounty. The birds birthed their babies on top of the branches. A jagged blade cut its life short, stripping it of its of the faithful leaves. The soul in its wood sought to stay beneath the rings. A seance in the store called it to leave and return to the forest gleam.
0: Excellent poem! Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. That's a cool story and cool take on it. Appreciate it.
11: <laughs> Thank you. Have a great night. Yep, you too. Thanks.
0: Bye. Um, there was Angela Gartner with uh, exorcism for the dead trees. Uh, let's see who else can we call up. Try Spartacus. I hope. Uh, Let's we'll see if he's still awake. It is late out there now. Hiya. Good evening, Spartacus. How are you doing tonight? I'm really well and you Tim. I'm excellent too. Let me uh let me fix your video. Um yeah. one second. There we go. So uh so how are things?
12: Um Good, but the internet doesn't help a lot. Yeah, <laughs> so it's it's a pity that I uh, I couldn't listen to the whole interview.
0: Yeah, hopefully I'm I'm curious to see how it is on replay because I think I don't know if it was just broken up or if it was actually it might be fine even if you if you know after they process it and weave it all back together maybe it'll be okay I don't know. Um, but anyway, what do you want to share with us tonight?
12: So I've got um, poets response poem about Rembrandt about a trim poem. Uh, Painting that they try to restore. And I've got a combined poem, a points, poets respond, and a prompt poem about a monkey that he went into a rail station.
0: Hmm. Um, well, I have the monkey one. Do you want to do that one? Yep. Okay, why don't we? Uh, oh, we have two here. I see. Okay. Yes. Um, and I put up this. Let's do the monkey one first. So I pulled up this story Monkey found at Campbell Sang railway station, reunited with family. This is a. This is what this is yeah. the monkey here, and uh, he was found at a railway station. uh oh, poor little guy, eaten out of a tin can. <laughs>
12: yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it, it even had food at the train station. So, yeah.
0: well, that, that's good. I mean, maybe you know, maybe it's not such a bad place to live. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's hear this poem. Uh, this is monkey found at railway station.
12: Reunited with its owner, asking myself questions in a moving train after a torrentian rain. What would I rather lose? My train, my temper, a monkey, or my muse? My human owner never asked me the question with his pompous voice in this never-ending game of only one choice. But modern times make me think that change is coming, if I spend wisely his ink for preparing a poetic reply as the missing link for my alibi. It was not difficult to spot food in the station. Every train looked very old when I was hungry and cold. I was not ready to go to the zoo. I just didn't have any clue how to find my place in the city next to a jungle's graffiti.
0: So thanks for sharing that. Always happy to see you, Spartacus.
12: Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. There's a Spartacus anagnostris. We'll try Gordon Coppola, see if Gordon's still here. Hey, Gordon, I'm glad you're you're, uh, you're stuck with us too, huh? I did. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, so, how are you doing this evening?
13: Doing great. You know, we had uh, some un- unseasonably very hot temperatures about a week ago. We got up to like a hundred and eight here, which I think was the highest temperature that uh, has ever been recorded in the Seattle area. Uh, yeah. But it's it's very pleasant now. So, That's yeah. good.
0: It's good to know it's cooled off Yeah, it was like the the longest or the the biggest one day drop in temperature. I saw a bunch of records for that too. So uh, feeling better now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what did you want to share tonight
13: well I got a prompt poem, uh for a train and uh, it's funny you mentioned you'd hardly ever been on a train because of my job in the military in, in Korea Germany and DC where I was stationed I rode wrote in trains just hundreds and hundreds of times love trains I could not think of anything to write about a train for a poem until a couple of days ago so I finally came up with something uh, so this one's called stay on board trust your engineer Remember Back to the Future, part three, at the end when that steam locomotive rises from its narrow, traditional tracks to soar through time and space in bright, renewable pastels? Well, that's our destination on this train, my friend, which is why we advocate for ever greater speed as we progress toward what seems to be a cliff to a few fragile passengers lost in ancient fears of change their small souls corrupted by shills for steel rail corporations and those who split and creosote the wooden ties. Accelerating, approaching our long desired horizon, we enter the final tunnel's mouth. Look left. Marks on the wall flash by. Countdown to something wonderful.
0: Ah, great short film. Stay on board, trust your engineer. Thanks for sharing that, Gordon.
13: Thank you, Tim. You have a good night, man.
0: Yeah, you too. As that uh, Gordon Coppola? Yeah, but that's going to have to finish up the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for your patience again um, through the difficulties, uh, technical and otherwise, this this uh, evening. Uh, but I appreciate getting to talk to you all. Um, and I'm going to put up the uh, screen for the next... Actually, before I do that, I should say this week's guest, <laughs> once again, was Alison Luterman, just in case you missed all this. Um, Alison Luterman um, had these two wonderful books of poetry, In the Time of Great Fires and uh and dear desire zoo and you can find more of Allison Luderman's work at her website which is allisonluderman.net just like it's spelled there on the screen a l i s o n l u t e r m a n.net that is Allison's website so you can find uh these books and links to the best places to buy them there and uh places like that and now um for the pro- for next week we have this write a poem based on or containing an idiom. If you need help finding an idiom, try the idiom generator at randomword.com/idiom. So we're going to write some idiomatic poetry next week. Um, if you don't know what an idiom is, you can look it up because I don't know the, the strict definition of it. But um, uh, we will we will look forward to writing those poems next week. What? How would you? How do you define an idiom? It's like a so a group of words established by usage is having a meaning not deducible from those of the individual words. Yes, that's why it's hard to define. <laughs> um, so it's an expression. I mean, um, you know, so so raining cats and dogs or see the light. So those kind of um, expressions that where cl- chunks of words mean things together, that they don't necessarily mean um, you know, the nuances of languages. Is basically what an idiom is. So, we're going to write a poem based on or about or including idioms for next week's prompt. And hopefully, the technical stuff will be better by then. Um, and next week's guest is only five days away. Uh, next week's guest is going to be Brother Yao. Uh, we are in episode number 101 now. And Brother Yao was a uh, guest way back in episode number like five or something, or maybe 10. Um, It's been two years since he's been on, and he has this new book. I just love Brother Yao's work, so um, I really wanted him on. It's the first time we're having a repeat guest, but we're going to be doing that from time to time as people publish new books. Um, His new book is One Shoe Marching Towards Heaven, and uh, a beautiful cover and and a great book. I just love his work. So we're going to be talking to um, Brother Yao in Rattlecast number 101. Um, Hope you have a good rest of your night. We'll see you for the critique of the week, and then for Rattlecast number 101... And that is uh, Sunday, July 11th, the regular day, but I am moving it forward one hour. So if you go to the website, rattle.com slash Rattlecast, there's a list of the schedule. If anything's unusual, I bolded it. And I'm moving this up because I have a commitment um, going on until like five. So I have to to move it up a little bit uh, my time. So uh, it'll be uh, Sunday, July 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, Rattlecast number 101 with Brother Yao and his new book, One Shoe Marching Towards Heaven and all your poems about idioms. So looking forward to that and hope you have a great rest of your week. Good night.